Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we infect weird and wonderful science directly into your genes. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, you'll hear Elise Sue talking about full automation and the future of work. We'll hear about the dangers of toilets from deep within the cassette archives. First up, here's news of microbes. of sleeping microbes deep underground. Colossally huge amounts of strange bacteria, archaea and other microbes exist deep underground. Researchers from the Deep Carbon Observatory estimate that they've found evidence from holes more than 5 kilometres deep of between 15 and 23 tonnes of a diverse microbial ecosystem. They say it weighs hundreds of times as much as all of the humans on Earth together. The Deep Carbon Observatory team combines 1,200 scientists from 52 countries and disciplines ranging from geology and microbiology to chemistry and physics. The results from this 10-year project suggest 70% of Earth's bacteria and archaea exist in the subsurface. Some of these organisms can exist for millennia. The microbes are metabolically active but in stasis using less energy while sleeping than biologists thought was possible to support life at all. Some microorganisms have been alive for thousands of years, barely moving except with shifts in the tectonic plates, earthquakes or eruptions. As H.P. Lovecraft wrote, That is not dead which can eternal lie, and with strange aeons even death may die. These microorganisms are part of slow, persistent cycles on geological timescales. The combined size of the biospheres under the ground are estimated to be more than 2 billion cubic kilometres. We still don't know whether life colonises up from the depths or down from the surface. Let's hope that the practices of injecting high-pressure water deep underground for fracking methane and injecting huge amounts of carbon dioxide deep underground for carbon capture don't kill off this newly discovered 75% of Earth's biosphere. Or, if we're really unlucky, release and wake from dormancy strange new pathogens, the likes of which we've never seen. The results were presented to the 2018 Annual Meeting of the American Geophysical Union. Germs! Germs! In 2015, researchers at the University of Westminster found that Dyson Airblade hand dryers spray 60 times more germs than old-fashioned hot air dryers and 1,300 times more germs than paper towels in public toilets. The researchers hope to improve understanding the ways in which bacteria that transmit diseases are spread. 
The researchers dipped their hands into water containing a harmless virus. They then dried their hands with either a Dyson air blade, a standard hot air dryer, or a paper towel. The jet of air from a Dyson air blade spread viruses up to three metres across a bathroom. The standard hot air dryer spread viruses 75 centimetres and the hand towels 25 centimetres. In 2014, a similar study by researchers from the University of Leeds found that there were 27 times more germs in the air around jet air dryers in comparison with the air around paper towel dispensers. However, the 2014 study was funded by the European Tissue Symposium, which made Dyson cry foul. In February 2016, Dyson retaliated with a YouTube video claiming that paper towels carry and spread more bacteria than a Dyson dryer. Have you used a paper towel today? It wasn't as hygienic as you might think. Independent research shows that before they even reach the washroom, paper towels can contain large communities of culturable bacteria, including toxin producers that can be picked up from the manufacturing, storage and handling process. Once in the washroom, bacteria in the air and contamination from previous users can be picked up by paper towels. Recent tests carried out in Chicago and New York show up to 88% of unused paper towels contain bacteria. When you dry your hands or wipe your face, the bacteria can transfer to your skin. Using a Dyson Airblade hand dryer is different. It's the most hygienic hand dryer. You don't have to touch anything to use one. And while all hand dryers draw in washroom air, Airblade technology cleans it first with a HEPA filter, which captures 99.97% of particles the size of bacteria, as small as 0.3 microns. So bacteria is trapped in the machine, not transferred to your hands. Dyson remind everyone that they use filters that stop bacteria-sized particles from being blown onto your hands, but they leave out that an ultra-high-speed jet of air pushes the water off your hands and into the air. If you didn't quite wash all the germs off your hands, or if your clean, wet hands picked up germs from the air, or a surface on their way to the Dyson Airblade, then the jets of air will push those germs into the air around the dryer for people to breathe in and to settle on them. In February 2018, a woman put a Petri dish inside a hot air dryer in a public toilet and incubated it for a few days. The result was a huge yellow mass of bacteria and fungi. She posted her experiment on Facebook and the story spread like... It was multiplied and cultured in the rich social media, like, that is to say, it went viral. As a result, she's given up using any air dryers or even paper towels to dry her hands in public toilets. Instead, she wipes them on her clothes and air dries them outside the public toilets. The important point is that there's no evidence that the germs in the air around dryers or on hand towels go on to cause disease. They're probably just germs from people's skin 
that like a moist environment. Unless sick people cough and sneeze into the wet air, in which case all bets are off. Perhaps public toilets should have a dry air environment to discourage pathogens. The 2015 paper was titled Evaluation of the Potential for Virus Dispersal During Hand Drying, a Comparison of Three Methods, and was published in the November 2015 issue of the Journal of Applied Microbiology. listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. And now, from the 1999 cassette archive almost 20 years ago, here's Lucas Curlin talking about Elvis on the Moon and the dangers of toilets. Lucas Curlin lifts the lid on the toilet and tells us the relative weights of the king. Well, Elvis Presley's just walking out on the stage. You can hear uh, a bit of applause from the audience. He's fumbling around with the microphone right now. He's uh, giving his cues to the boys. He's winding up his leg. And here he goes with Heartbreak Motel. It is known fact that the king is everywhere. Considering the ever-increasing size of Elvis when he was on the earth, I have worked out what Elvis would weigh on some of our planetary neighbours. So let's start with his hotel on the moon. He'd be weighing 19.4 kilograms or 431 pounds. On earth, 255 pounds, that's 114.8 kilograms. But this figure may be a conservative estimate. Let's put Elvis on Mercury. That's 97 pounds for him, or 43.7 kilograms. On the beautiful ring planet Saturn, 123.8 kilograms, and 275 pounds. On ruddy Mars, he'd be coming at 43.7 kilograms, which is 97 pounds. And on mighty Jupiter, 648 pounds, or 291.6 kilograms. If he likes the outer coldness of Pluto, he's lucky there, only 13 pounds. And finally, if Elvis finds the sun's warmth appealing, then he would weigh a whopping 7,140 pounds. That is, 3,213 kilograms. I included imperial measurements out of respect for the king. Thank you very much. Your toilet can be hazardous to your health. We often worry about getting diseases from toilet seats, but according to a US microbiologist, it is the toilet itself and not the seat that is the real problem. 25 years ago, Dr. Charles Gerber from the Department of Biology at the University of Arizona wondered why gastrointestinal illnesses spread so quickly. He knew the conventional wisdom of public health experts that hands contaminate with fecal bacteria 
served as a cheap path for spreading the infection. Dr. Gerber was not convinced that the wisdom could always explain the rapid spread of many diseases such as diarrhea. He reasoned that bacteria might be spread through the air in water droplets when toilets are flushed. This reasoning led him to adopt the toilet as his research lab. Discovering something more than the fact about toilet paper dispensers having a nasty habit of running short at the most inconvenient moment. Dr. Gerber found that after flushing, a vapour of water was blown upwards. Simply closing the toilet cover while flushing proved ineffective. The bacteria were released the next time the lid was opened. And also, bacteria was found to live in the bowl even after several days of flushing. Other results from Dr. Gerber's toilet researching indicate that some public toilets are safer than others. Hospitals and libraries usually are the cleanest, while petrol stations pride themselves by having some of the dirtiest, as if we already didn't know. Finally, Dr. Gerber gives this advice if you must use public toilets. Avoid the middle stall. Apparently, the middle stall is used the most, making it most likely to be harboring the latest disease doing the rounds. Perhaps toilets should convey a government warning. This toilet can be hazardous to your health. was Lucas Curlin talking about Elvis on the Moon and the dangers of toilets in 1999. Bacteria. Bacteria. You might not see them, but they're there. Bacteria. And now, the future of work. Elise Sue is a co-founder of Transhumanism Australia and one of the organisers of the November 2018 Transhumanism and Emerging Technologies Talks. Elise spoke on the social consequences of full automation. Elise has founded startups including Genomics, which tried to democratise gene sequencing, and she's a machine learning developer at Hut34, a blockchain-based AI platform for chatbots. Elise began by looking at the nature of work. I just want to get a show of hands here. Who actually loves working? Like, who really loves work? I love work. Okay. All right. I'm a a bit surprised. I'm actually surprised that there's so many hands up. So my name's Elise Sue, and I'm one of the co-founders of Transhumanism Australia. Today, what I'll be talking about is the future of work, and specifically, I'll be talking about developments that are accelerating us towards total job automation. So why I've chosen to focus on this particular viewpoint, because there's a lot of differing viewpoints on what people think the future of work will look like, is just because there has been a lot of media attention on this particular topic recently. So I want you to meet this guy called Zhao He's 25 years old, and he's all alone in a Chinese warehouse with only robots for company. And that's not because China has a shortage of women. It's actually because he works in a warehouse that is completely automated by robots. 
So this particular warehouse is about the size of seven football fields and it also ships and packs about 300 boxes each day. And it's all done by robots. So there's no human involved in the process. Although there are four humans who just babysit these machines and Zhao just happens to be one of them. So this um, warehouse is actually owned by one of the e-commerce giants called JD.com. So um, Zhao is actually helping JD.com roll out this automation to their other warehouses because this is just one of them that they have. So this is really telling because it kind of shows us that once you have the procedures and the processes and the technology and the learnings in place, you can easily roll out automation to other locations and also other functions so that eventually you may end up automating your entire business. And China's actually one of the fastest growing adopters of automation as well. And this is largely due to the fact that Chinese companies get incentives for buying robots. So in 2016 alone, they actually bought um, a record number of robots, 87,000 units, uh, which is more than the US and Germany combined. So this is me, a uh, picture of me at one of my family farms, which um, uses hydroponics. And then this is a picture of spread, which has taken hydroponics to the next level. It's a fully automated lettuce farm that is run entirely by robots. That's based in Kyoto, Japan. So this farm harvests about 30,000 heads of lettuce each day. So robots plant the seeds. They also water it, um, monitor it, and also are able to um, uh, crop the, the lettuce heads as well. So what we can see here is the next level of robotics. So robots from the last decade or so have mostly been single purpose and single use, uh, uh, sorry, a single task. But increasingly, we're moving towards robots which are multi-purpose and which can perform tasks in an end-to-end -end process. You've also got research and consultancies like McKinsey who've said that they predict up to 800 million jobs will be lost worldwide by 2030. And then you look at Australia, what's happening here? So in the banking industry alone, you've got NAB who are slashing up to 6,000 uh, 6, jobs sorry, in the next three years. ANZ has already cut 5,000 jobs. And then you've got Citibank who are cutting 13,000 jobs, some which are based here and some which are based in the States. And then you look at the tech industry, and that's not safe either, because you've got HP who are cutting 5,000 people over the, the next year or so. Microsoft has cut 10,000 people, and then you've got IBM who've also slashed about 20,000 jobs in the last couple of years. So it's not just happening in individual companies, it's actually um, happening in entire industries. And when that happens, you just don't have enough jobs available or being created at a fast enough pace to be able to have a role available for the unemployed. So in the face of 
impending doom, some people have come up with a, or proposed a couple of solutions to this. And one of them is tokenization of assets. So what that is, is converting a right to a real life asset into a token that sits on the blockchain. So if you had a car to sell and you wanted to sell it for about $10,000, maybe there's not a lot of buyers out there because they simply can't afford it. But if you were to break it up into um, little bits and pieces, say in 10 equal parts, and convert them into a token, which is sell for, um, say, $1,000 each, you may actually attract a larger number of buyers and also increase the likelihood that you get the money that you like for it. So in medieval Europe, a lot of peasants were um, craftsmen and they worked for themselves. So they were producing boots, um, leather and, and bread. And eventually in the future, we may return to a model that's very similar. So you can, could actually sell tokens in anything that you produce yourself, such as your writing or any artwork you produce. You can fractionalize any assets that you have. And up here, you can see on this slide, there's this poster. So this poster is actually sitting in a subway in New York. And this poster is um, advertising this artist called Casey Pearl, um, also based in New York. She's an independent blockchain artist. And what she's selling is tokens in her art. So it's already happening right now. And one of the trends in crypto world right now that's driving tokenization is stable coins like Tether and Gemini. Another solution being proposed by some is universal basic income or UBI. So what that is, is a basic payment which everyone is entitled to, which you receive regardless of your assets or your income, and which is just enough to cover basic needs such as food and rent. So in Finland, they've just completed their two-year trial with it, although they haven't yet released results. And you've also got some trials which are about to launch in Scotland, in Glasgow and Edinburgh. And in the States, you've also got the experiment, which is being run by Y Combinator, which is one of the most famous startup accelerators. So they are funding a five-year experiment into UBI in Oakland. And then across the other side of the world, you've got India, where their chief economic advisor said it's very likely that in the next two years, two Indian states will start implementing UBI themselves. So the previous two solutions look after our basic needs, but we've also got to think about our mental health as well. Because with the loss of jobs, people will start feeling a loss of purpose as well. So quite a few people, including the best-selling author, Yuval Noah Harari of Sapiens and Homo Deus, and even Mark Zuckerberg himself, has proposed that maybe we need to reclassify what a job is and also start creating communities around that. So for example, we could think of mentoring the youth or looking after the elderly or even cleaning up the environment as jobs in the future. And this is important because it will start giving people a sense of purpose that they crave.
That was Elise Sue talking about full unemployment at Transhuman Australia. Look on the Diffusion episode page for the video of Elise's talk. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to hear your voice on radio? Record a voice memo on your phone or use the voicemail tab on the website. We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. Send your contributions, opinions, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. Please do send me an email with a question I can answer on the show. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate the show on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolfe. The news music was Rhinos Theme by Kevin MacLeod of Incompetech.com. Sound and fact-checking by Charles Willock. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia to 28 stations on the community radio network, including 2RBM in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales, 8CCC in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, 2NVR in Nambucca Valley, 3MBR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia, City Park Radio 7LTN in Launceston, Tasmania, 2XXFM in Canberra, and my local station, 2RDJ in Burwood, New South Wales. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station and also on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com that's www.diffusionradio.com and check the website for links, photos and videos about this week's show. If you enjoyed this show, you can explore more than 950 previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com where the shows are labelled by keywords so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. Join my patrons at patreon.com slash Diffusion Radio. Make a donation through paypal.me slash ianwolf or listen to Diffusion on your phone or tablet through Radio Public, who will pay me for every Diffusion subscriber who uses the Radio Public podcast app. Subscribe to the Diffusion YouTube channel at youtube.com slash c slash Diffusion Radio. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know, and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the Earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography. Collecting. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life.